Cody, if, if I was the bank and you deposited $100 with me and I gave you a very generous 1%, you, you would have a dollar. I control your 100 for $1 and I give the money to Justin and charge him 4%, I make $4 on your 100. A lot of people would say, oh, I made 3%. I actually made 300%. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we have on Caleb Williams from Better Wealth, an author of The And Asset. This is a really good one. But before we get into that one, let's check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Uh, this weekend was a little more calm since we just got off of multiple weekends on the road in Mississippi, followed by Big Bend and Marfa. And so we've just been on the road so much. We've actually been doing a little bit of work as like property managers on the apartment that we used to live in. So we knocked out some things there, went to Ikea and got a couple things for it, went by the apartment, fixed a couple little things that needed fixed. And so now we think we should be good to go for quite a while with with no effort there. So that's a nice little passive income we got going on. Not deep into the real estate game, but you know, trying to get my toes in there, Cody. How about you? Well, I had a little not passive income experience this past week, which was Lauren had this dog named Wellington. His nickname is Welly on Rover. So we were watching him pretty much all last week. We took him to the brewery. We had him out and about. He was having the time of his life. He was just living it up. (laughs) And then on Saturday, ended up getting out to Mount Snow for some snowboarding. And we actually got like three to five inches, depending where you were in Central Mass and up in New Hampshire and Connecticut. So it was amazing. Like the conditions were so much better than the past two times I've gone. If you guys have been listening, I was complaining a bit about the ice, but it was it was really good conditions. Then just kind of hung out and chilled with some people at our place and watched a bunch of football on Sunday. So overall, it was a great weekend. But Justin, that's enough about us. Let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans. These can be 401ks. These can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. Alrighty, like I mentioned quickly at the beginning of the episode, today we have on Caleb Williams. And just quick word of caution, this episode does get a bit advanced, but if you're a money nerd, if you're a financial independence nerd like Justin and myself, we really get into the weeds here and talk about some really kind of advanced investing strategies and just wealth protection strategies. So Caleb is the author of The And Asset, and this is where he talks about, and you know, before you cringe and shut this podcast off, a really unique and interesting way to use whole life insurance with all these things called riders to invest strategically and make your money go a lot farther than I personally ever knew was possible. Like I was blown away by some of the stuff and we just really keep digging and digging and Caleb is just answering these questions in stride. Yeah, Cody. And I mean, you know, when you're in this space for a while, sometimes it can kind of get almost a little monotonous. Like, you know, you know, all the rules, you know, the things to do like, okay, you've done it. You hear the same things over and again. This is definitely not one of those episodes. And I think it's a great reminder that Sometimes there's things that you've just kind of put off and said, no way, no how. And this still may not be for you, but at least like to think about it, to not just write something off forever, to keep educating yourself. And Caleb does a great job of educating us on the topic. And like Cody said, you know, if you're a money nerd, you're definitely going to enjoy this episode. If you know a fellow money nerd who might enjoy it, or you just want to dig in and learn more about Caleb and the stuff that he's got going on, you can do all that over at thefyshow.com slash Caleb. That's thefyshow.com slash C-A-L-E-B. Take it away, Caleb. 
So I'm going to take you back to when I was 12 years old. And I know that some people watching this are like, wait a second, you look about 12 years old now. So I, I don't know how far back we're going here. But one thing that your audience needs to know about me is I'm super short, or I at least was super short, and I struggle with reading. And I have my most embarrassing moment in front of my entire peer group where I totally forget what I'm going to say. I pull out my note card and I sound out every single word. I don't remember what I was even talking about, but I do remember feeling like a fool on stage walking off. And the very next day I went to my mom in tears because I was frustrated that my younger sister was taller than me and I couldn't read and I just embarrassed myself. And she said something really simple to me that was the catapult to everything that I'm doing now. She said, Caleb, the things that you can't control, don't put your identity in. But the things that you can control, you have a moral obligation to go all in. And what I realized is majority of things in our life, we can control. We always like to point our finger at the president and inflation and all these things that are the reasons why we're not successful. But there's so many things in our life that we can control. And that translates into money, that translates into job, that translates into being proactive. And so that was probably like the catalyst. My dad was a PhD molecular biologist that didn't have a lot of friends and was really hard on me growing up and taught me to be proactive. I credit that as being a really big part of my life. And then I just got, I think, lucky with a lot of opportunities young that I ran with. So those are some like great insights from your parents and probably things that helped molded you. But they could have went a lot of different directions. Wouldn't necessarily had to end up in finance. Like you can control the things you control, but that doesn't mean money necessarily. So when did things start kind of turning towards finance specifically? When I was 15 years old, I worked at a chicken farm. Okay. I don't know if you guys are vegan or if there's any vegan listeners. I apologize. But let's just say I have a high appreciation for the chicken sandwich and I process chickens for a living, okay? So I started making money and I read a book called The Richest Man in Babylon. And that book was like, whoa, I should pay myself first before I pay anyone else. And that discipline and then compound interest and all that stuff. So I read, even though reading was tough for me, I I learned podcasting. I don't know if Audible is a thing. I think I got CDs and I read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Think and Grow Rich. Robert Kiyosaki, my dad gave me, my mind started like getting open to this idea that our money could start working for us. And then I sat down with a gentleman who is actually no longer alive. But at the time, he's like, young man, you need you need experience. And so he picked up his phone and got me a job at a bank that he was on the board with. It was a small little community bank. And I'm 17 years old. And I'm working as a teller. And that's when I really learned that people's financial lives are broken. I saw at a small local community bank, so many messed up things, people hiding bank account, like bank accounts from their spouses, from, you know, making money and having nothing from bouncing checks. I saw business owners who are running successful businesses that are broke. And that's when I like, I just fell in love with this whole money space and worked in every department. Um, I was an HR nightmare because I was only allowed to work so many hours. And so I would punch in those hours and then work for free the rest. And I always wanted to be in the investment world because I was fascinated with money. I, I traded options as a kid. I did stock market. I was just fascinated by real estate. And so at 18 years old, I'm, I'm working as the investment assistant. And I thought I arrived because I had my first business cards because they don't give tellers business cards, okay? And I had my first business card saying, Caleb Williams, investment assistant. And I just made a commitment that I was going to do everything I could to help people. And then my life changed pretty dramatically when the guy that was running our investment department took another job outside the bank. And 19-year-old Caleb, who looks like he's 14, they decide like, oh, this would be a great idea to give you the corner office of the bank while you're a freshman in college and have you meet with all the people that have retirement accounts with us. And so that's on one hand, I'm like the coolest freshman. And on the other hand, I'm like, I experienced 10 minutes of horror when people come into the bank and they're like, I have grandchildren older than you. What in the world are you going to do and help me as it relates to money? And that's when I just started asking questions. And it's funny, I always give credit. The fact that I know like I've taken this unique approach to money actually comes from not having a direct mentor. Because if I was mentored by like a typical financial planner, I would have all the talking points and just have probably made above average than a financial planner. I started asking questions and saying like, okay, how are the wealthy making money? Like, like why are people broke? Like, why, why, why? And I kind of went through a unique approach. And when you're super young and you're willing to reach out to people, people are willing to mentor you. And so I just, I, that's kind of my unique approach. And that's when I got into the money space. And then a couple of years later, I left Start Better Wealth. And it, it all really stemmed from the, the two and a half years of learning things 
and really being willing to sit at people's feet and learn alternative ways of thinking about money. And that's, I really credit my master's to money for that journey. Even though I went and got a finance degree, I learned way more the alternative routes of education versus through the university. So as you're you know, learning from all these colleagues, these people, real life experience rather than just financial planners giving you the script and letting you kind of roll with it. I'm going to now ask a question. You were the question asker, asker back when you were 19 years old working at this financial institution. But what is the wealth equation? I know that's something you mentioned really early on in your book. And I thought it was really fascinating kind of the way you frame wealth and how we're thinking about it wrong. I love this question because I wrote the and asset, which that question comes from in 2018. Okay. So I'm going to give you two answers because I've learned a lot since writing that book. So the wealth equation in that book is E equals MC squared. I know nothing about the original equation that, you know, Einstein made up. What the wealth equation for me was like, okay, efficiency will be when your money is maximizing compound growth, which is essentially the long-term value of what your money could be worth in the future and the ability to control. And what I've learned, and, and just now that I'm sharing this with you, just watch other people as they talk. A lot of people in the financial industry are telling you that you can either have one or the other. You can compound your money for the long term, but you usually give up control or control your money. But what are you giving up when you control your money? You're usually giving up the ability to compound your money like in a Roth IRA. And so one of the epiphanies that I had in just this journey was like, man, what if we could maximize not just compounding or control, but what if we could have both? And that's the, that was the original definition of like E equals MC squared as efficiency. The, the way I explain efficiency now is I just share the definition where it's getting your desired result by minimizing all the unnecessary energy, time, effort, and, and what I like to call friction. And so you are efficient if you know where you want to go and you get there the fastest. And a lot of people when it comes to their financial life are like, I want to be, I want to be in Austin, Texas, so I'm going to walk there. Whereas airplanes get me to Austin, Texas faster. We, the destination's the same. One way is just way faster than the other. So I actually had the opportunity yesterday to speak to my old high school and speaking to younger people about personal finance. There's just some things it's a little harder to get through to. So somebody who took on to finances so early, I think this question will be even more relevant. But when people, another thing people think they're giving up kind of when they decide, okay, yeah, I'm going to have wealth is they think they're going to have to accept this kind of delayed gratification. They're going to have to give yeah. up living now. So I guess, how did you think about that when you started learning about money? Did you did you get nervous? Like, oh, that means I'm going to have to kind of live in my mom's basement and never go do anything. Or did you, you know, did you kind of come around to that idea in a positive way and think, no, I'm just going to focus on the things that are important or just kind of how did your mind go with that? Yeah, so my default is to be a saver and not spend any money. So I'm probably the wrong person to ask that question because I... I graduated college with more money than I, you know, started with and I paid for it myself because um, I just hate spending money. So my default is being a saver and I, I love like getting our money to work for us. One of the one of the, the whole concepts that we teach, though, is I don't lo love this concept of just putting your money away and waiting for 45 years or 30 years. I just it, when you look at the economy, when you look at just what are better ways to create wealth? I think understanding value creation and leverage are the keys. I, I see a lot of people in the way that they handle their money not leveraging it properly. And so I'm not a huge fan of locking up your money uh, because I want to be a control freak when it comes to money. But at the same time, I think one of the biggest problems, and it goes back to the richest man in Babylon, is that concept of the discipline of paying yourself first and getting your money to continue to work for you. And so I do think the reason why a lot of people are broke and not getting success is how they think. And a lot of times we're self-sabotaging our ability to get results because of our own money decisions and bad habits. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I definitely think if you're not going to master thyself, you can learn all the great strategies in the world and you're just not going to be able to stick with it because there is going to be a lot of friction that gets in the way of getting to your result. I could not agree more. And I think this is a perfect transition into three types of people that you talk about. Another book question, because I did like the book a lot and I took a lot of notes. Debtors, savers, and maximizers. Could you please describe those three cohorts to the audience? Yes, I, 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 I love this interview, by the way. Thank you for these questions. It really comes back to this concept of every decision we make has consequences. So opportunity cost essentially says, if you're listening to me right now, you're not able to listen to all the other amazing interviews out there. If you spend a dollar on a tax or a coffee or on my book or whatever, 
that dollar's never able to earn for you ever again. So a lot of times there's this concept of pay cash for everything. Well, I'm going to say something that some, some people might freak out. When you pay cash for something, you're financing. You're not paying interest, but you're disrespecting the value of what your dollars could be earning. And so you're losing the ability to earn interest. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So a lot of people, and I'll, I'll call out Dave Ramsey, he looks at people that you know, are, are the ones that get the car loan. And, and he's like, you are an idiot because you're paying interest to buy a car. And we make it all about depreciating assets versus like assets. And all I'm saying is there's a cost to buying that car. But if I pay $10,000 of cash for that car, that's going to cost me over $100,000 over my lifetime. Because I literally disrespected what that $10,000 could be worth in the future. And, and as a controller, I probably could make even more because I know how to flip that money. So the third type of person, so the first person is the debtor. The second person is the saver, which what does Grant Cardone say? Savers are losers or Robert Kiyosaki. The third type of person understands this concept, which I call controlled compounding. They understand that there's a cost to everything that they do. And they're, they're going to most effectively and efficiently utilize capital to buy, hopefully, an asset while still maximizing the growth of their money. There's really two ways to do this. So I'll, I'll share this in a way. Like if your money's in a Roth IRA and you're confident of the growth long-term, instead of taking your money out and disrespecting what that money could be worth, potentially getting a loan from a credit union or a bank, yes, there's some interest that you're paying, but it's allowing you, your money to grow. That is, that is a, a way to use this strategy. I'm a big fan of using life insurance and I do the same type of thing is I save money. I don't use it as an investment but I, I leverage that asset to go invest in other assets and I effectively have my money do more than one thing for me. And you just mentioned the kind of one of those things where you could kind of disagree with Dave Ramsey. And I know you did a podcast where you talked about the seven baby steps and what you thought about those as far as, you know, which ones are you agreed with and which ones you didn't. Um, obviously, a lot of people get started with Dave Ramsey. Are there any of those other things where you're like, yeah, I mean, I get it. It's maybe good to get started. It's maybe good for someone who doesn't have control over yep. themselves. But once you master that, this probably doesn't work so well anymore. Yeah. So, so number one, I, I think Dave Ramsey is is doing a lot more good than he's doing harm because he's he's really screaming at people that need to be screamed at. <laughs> like, um, like you should credit cut up your credit card if you're having massive balances and you're buying everything and you don't have discipline. Like, don't listen to me because I'll get you in trouble. Listen to Dave Ramsey. The biggest thing is like, um, there's a difference between just being broke and being like less poor. So I, I think Dave Ramsey helps you be less poor. But if you want to start building wealth, I think he's one of the biggest hypocrites when it comes to building wealth because like literally our dollar bill, I'm reading this, it is a note. Like this is a Federal Reserve note. So I don't want to go too insane here, but like currency is debt. So you're in debt regardless. It goes back to everything you do is you finance. So he's just the fact of buying a house for, with cash is probably one of the craziest things. And in my book, I actually make the argument that I believe you're way better off with security, control, and money-wise if you use a mortgage. So it's an example of like, okay, there's ways that leverage can be used that can actually benefit you. I'm not a huge fan of leveraging and speculating or leverage can enable you to buy bad stuff. I just think this whole concept of like all debt is bad, it just kind of disrespects economics. So fundamentally, I think Dave Ramsey is great. And I think unfortunately, 95% of the population needs to just spend less and be less broke. But if you really want to generate wealth, you have to start saying, what, how can I increase cash flow? Cash flow is the metric that matters, not being debt free, because you can be debt free and broke. Unfortunately, like being debt free to really doesn't translate into cash flow. And so that's where Dave Ramsey and I differ. Yeah, I would take an 80 year mortgage if they'd give it to me. <laughs> me too. I actually heard that there's a 50 year mortgage out there. So I need to do more research. But I had a mortgage broker say, you could do a 50 year mortgage. And I'm like, I need to learn more information because you're the first person to tell me that. <laughs> so before we really deep dive into the and asset, I really want to get tactical with that, but not right now. I have a few more questions from the book and just from my research. So you talk a lot about investing at the center and you just talked about your controlled compounding and having control is like one of the best things you can do when you're investing. And an example you give in the book is Mark Zuckerberg. He's in control of Facebook. He is literally like the master shareholder. He makes all the big decisions. 
next rung out is maybe some small private investors in Facebook. The next rung out is Facebook's just regular investors. The next rung out is like people who invest in an index fund that holds Facebook. My question is, as you go further in, you're probably going to be exposing yourself to more risk. How do you mitigate that risk? How do you not put all your eggs in one basket when you're having the maximum amount of control over that asset? Yeah, that's a great question. There's not a cookie cutter answer because at the end of the day, everyone has to look at number one, what they actually want to accomplish and then use their money the best way to accomplish that. I share in the example, and this will answer your question, I promise. I shared like, what's the ROI of having a golf club? Well, for me, it's spending money on golf and losing golf balls, okay, and having some fun in the process. I'm not a great golfer. If you're Phil Mickelson, he makes millions and millions and millions of dollars, not just winning golf tournaments, but everything that comes from that. So a golf club is really, it's not the golf club, it's how you use it. That example actually came from like when Gary Vaynerchuk would talk about like, what's the ROI of a basketball or a piano? It's, it's not necessarily that thing but it's how you use it. And so I would just push that back on, I think before someone takes a principle and says, you know, invest all in control or invest in yourself, you have to do a self-analysis and say like, what are you actually good at? And where are your skill sets? And maybe the S&P or doing an ETFs are the best way to go because there's really nothing else that gives you a unique advantage. And so I think it really is you as your greatest asset, what are you want to be a part of and what do you want to do? And we're big fans of being self-aware and really putting your money and time and building relationships with things that will help you get closer to where you want to go. And it is hard to give investment advice because everyone's different. Knowing your story, Cody, it's like, I know that you can make magic happen and build businesses and e-com, whereas it would be a very foolish for me to just say, oh, Cody did it, so I'm going to do it now. And so it's very much of like, where are you good at? And then be- how you answer that, invest in that way. And kind of going off, Cody's, you know, like the Facebook analogy from the book is as someone who has that much control, a lot of times that feels labor intensive. It feels like a lot of the times the point of a lot of people searching for wealth is so that they have all their time back and have the freedom to do what they want to do. So how would you say, you know, your thoughts on balancing the control with the actual freedom of time to not be worried about what it is you're controlling? That's a great question. It really comes down to the concept of value leveraging, which is going to be a new book that I come out with. And it really comes down to if you want to be wealthy, there's two things that need to happen. You need to create value. Now, the basic way to do that is through labor and skill set. But if you look at all the wealthy people, are they working a billion times harder than we are? Are they a billion times smarter than we are? No, they're, they're leveraging that value in other ways, whether it's, whether it's code, whether it's media, whether it's labor, whether it's in other aspects of using capital. And so I'm a big fan of... Control could also just be used as thinking. I'm not a fan of trading your time for money. One of the things that I'm grateful for is, is Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, where he very much like lays out you are financially free when you have enough passive income, or I like to say passive cash flow being greater than your expenses. And so our, our whole hope is like, how do you create the value, which will hopefully translate into cash flow? And how do you get that to live an intentional life? That's our definition of financial freedom is having enough cash flow to live intentionally. And a lot of our clients use the stock market, use syndications, use rental real estate. Some people are love business and they're not in the business. They have an operator running the business. The goal is not to trade time for money and it looks different for each person. Well, this is what I will say, and it's probably pretty clear. And I have changed my position since 2018 when I wrote the book. I think the stock market is a good place to put your money. I just don't think it's the most leveraged place to put your money. And as a result, I choose to, to invest in other places. And I think long-term, an ETF that has very low cost is a great place and could be a phenomenal place, depending on where you are, to grow some or the majority of your money. So I'm going to rewind to Austin, Texas, Uber ride with you, Caleb. And we were just talking finance, talking about this and that, and You mentioned something that you had kind of figured out about the big banks, the big corporations, just things that everyday investors don't know about. And you realize this when you were 19 years old, just kind of the way they handle their books and handle their finances to get the maximum leverage. And I want to use this as a lead up into the and asset. And what don't we know? And why don't we know this stuff? Yeah. So there's two things. A lot of times we look at like, and I'll usually ask this question, what's the most profitable business in the world? And people usually will be like, I don't know, Amazon, whatnot. 
and I'll be like, banking? Because what are banks? They're literally institutions that mark up our money. That's why they give us lollipops, right? Because we're the ultimate suckers to be in this industry. And so what's interesting is we can make fun of banks and we can say, oh, banks are evil. But what if we just applied the principles that banks are using and model that in for ourselves? And so here are a couple principles that banks use. And if you're listening to this, I would really encourage you to take notes because think about how you can model this in your own life. So the first principle of banks is they're institutions that just get as much money to flow to them. You ever wonder why they like sometimes make it free if you create a direct deposit? Because they're seeing your money before you are. And so like banks understand that they want money to flow to them. They also understand the power of leverage. Cody, if, if I was the bank and you deposited $100 with me and I gave you a very generous 1%, you, you would have a dollar. I control your 100 for $1 and I give the money to Justin and charge him 4%, I make $4 on your 100. A lot of people would say, oh, I made 3%. I actually made 300% with your money. So they understand leverage and, and they're institutions that can legally leverage money because they can use what's called velocity and just do that multiple times. But then they also minimize their risk by saying, Justin, you're going to have to put up your house or your firstborn or your car <laughs> as collateral. If you don't pay me, I'm going to take back some value. And so I'm using Cody's money, making a 300% rate of return, and I'm making Justin take the risk because if he doesn't pay me back, I'm taking his house. They're institutions that are paying themselves. They're looking for opportunities. They're getting money in motion. And it's like, that's brilliant. And they're really not taking on a ton of risk. Now, where they are taking on risk is they're leveraging massive amounts of money. And so it really comes down to a cash flow play if they stop. So I'm not saying that the banking institutions are flawless. I'm saying it's fascinating. And I just started asking questions. I'm like, I'm at a small community bank. There's 24 people employed. We don't sell any products. How does this work? <laughs> it's so interesting when you think about that. So think about anytime you see like football stadiums, like look at who owns or sponsoring those stadiums and start connecting the dots. What was interesting is a lot of those institutions have what their tier one assets in special type of life insurance. So like, for instance, Wells Fargo, Chase Bank, US Bank, all have over $19 billion. I want that to sink in. Over $19 billion of some of their safest assets in what's called bank-owned life insurance. And they do that because there's just a lot of advantages, but they use it as an asset that they leverage against. But there's a lot of reasons to keep key employees, to have tax benefits. And so banks do that. A lot of corporations have some of their safest assets there and they don't use it as an investment. They just use it as a storehouse place for money. And as I was learning and going through this journey, I started like looking at that. And I always thought that life insurance was a horrible place to put your money. And through this journey, I realized life insurance is a terrible investment. It's a horrible place to invest your money. Never invest your money in life insurance. But it can be a phenomenal place to storehouse your money because of the long-term benefits and also the leverageability. And so... That was kind of got me on this journey of like, oh, maybe life insurance could play a role in part of my portfolio. And that sounds like that's what led you down this road of, you know, the and asset. So I think we're now at a good place where we can kind of start unwrapping what you mean when you say the and asset and why is it you would want to park all this money into life insurance? Yeah, I'm always like at FinCon, I was like kind of afraid to tell people like what our company does because life insurance is so hated in many areas and it rightfully should be. So I, I want the disclaimer is don't take this podcast or my book and get a bunch of life insurance on you. I, I'm not endorsing that. What I discovered is when life insurance is fully funded or overfunded in such a way where you're minimizing the insurance and you're maximizing the cash, it looks totally different than traditional life insurance. And you're actually ironically minimizing the commissions that the people get. So that's why you don't hear a ton about it. But when you design that, it's in a very effective place to park some of your money, have it grow the rest of your life. Based on tax code 7702A, your money can grow without paying taxes. It can be utilized without paying taxes and it gets passed on to the next generation tax-free. And so simply put, if funded properly, it can be a phenomenal place to grow your money tax-free and also use it to reinvest tax-advantaged. And that's what kind of got me on this journey. And then I really became a believer when I had the epiphany of like, remember early on the compounding and control and this like dilemma that I had between should I compound my money or should I control it? But I felt like I either had to choose one or the other. And I realized like, oh, 
life insurance is not competing as an investment, but it can be an amazing place that I can most efficiently compound my money for the future and still be able to utilize it in other capacities. And so from that, since I've written the book, I've really been invested a lot in the retirement planning world. And I realized that a lot of the retirement planners, including Ernst and Young, just came out recently with a study where they're saying life insurance can enhance other stock market assets or annuities or pensions because of how it works. And so there's a lot of people coming around this concept of life insurance has other benefits, not just the internal benefits. And I think I just learned that early on and it just became really evident to me that it could enhance someone's ability to show up, save more and have their money protected at the same time. So I'm an open book. We can go as deep as you want into that strategy. That was one of the things that I, I learned in the journey and ultimately why I started Better Wealth is to share this message. Well, let's definitely dig into this because I think we're going to have a lot of listeners who are going to be taking notes, who are going to re-listen to stuff and let's get super tactical. So phrase you mentioned was overfunding your life insurance. What does that mean? Does it mean your life insurance is $25 a month and you're just putting five grand in it? Or, you know, how do you even facilitate that? Yep. So if you buy term insurance, you're essentially renting protection for a certain amount of years and less than 2% of term pays out. And so obviously the insurance company makes their money because majority of people that do term insurance are not going to die. And so they're taking those premiums and investing. And that's pretty simple. When you look at the world of permanent life insurance, people like Dave Ramsey will say is like, it's a total ripoff because they steal your money and your death benefit stays level and it's not a very good investment. And I would agree with him because if structured not optimally, it's really crappy place to put your money. What I've discovered is there are different riders that you can put on insurance that essentially allow you to put a lot more money in and actually minimize the death benefit. And we're minimizing the death benefit up into what's called the MEC limit. And, and the MEC stands for Modified Endowment Contract. And the reason why we get that all the way up to that limit is that's what makes life insurance tax-free. If you overfund it or fund it over the MEC limit, now you don't have the tax-free benefit of life insurance. And it kind of defeats a lot of the benefits of why people put their money. And so there's really an art and a science in using special riders to the whole goal is to put as much money in and get the least amount of insurance as possible because the insurance is really the drag to your cash. And so the whole paradigm shift is this. A lot of people, when they think of life insurance, they see it as an expense and they want to pay as little bit of money as possible to get the most amount of coverage, which is great. If that's all you care about, go the term insurance route. The paradigm shift is like, if you're going to use it as a savings vehicle, the most efficient way is to put as much money in for the least amount of insurance. And as a result, you're getting your cash to have a lot more living benefits. And the death benefit is one of those things that will be an asset long-term, but early on, it's not really that big of an advantage. And so there really is an art to that. And it really goes down into PUA riders, term riders, and, and blending that properly where you do that. And, and here's the thing, and I'll share with your audience. When you properly overfund it, instead of having zero cash in the first year, you should have 80 plus percent in some cases, over 90% of cash value in the first year. It should break even in the first five or six years. Those are two really big things that should happen. And when you structure it properly, you're cutting the commission in one-tenth or one-twelfth of what a traditional policy would be. And so that is, if you're going to work with someone, do you have more than 80% cash value in the first year? When does it break even? That will give you kind of an understanding. Is this properly funded or is it not optimally funded? And I don't know how complicated this would be to do, but it would be interesting if we could kind of talk through a real world example where we're saying, I'm going to be putting in what, like $1,000 a month for a $20,000 life insurance policy that's whole life. And once the money's in there and I've got all this extra cash that's not going towards insurance, what do I do with that? Do I have a selection of assets that I can invest in? Or how is that money actually growing? Those sort of questions. I'm the weird guy that's actually coming out with a movie on this strategy, <laughs> mainly because what I found is there's, and I'm going to do my very best to answer your question. You can feel free to interrupt me or ask a follow-up question. Here's what's very, very difficult about life insurance is how do we measure an asset? It's usually by rate of return. This account gets you eight and this gets you six. The eight is better than the six. The tough thing is there's way more benefits that we need to measure, but are, are very hard to measure because um, it's like, what's the value of having creditor protection? Well, as messed up as this sounds, the executives at Enron 
kept a lot of their money because it was in life insurance and annuities. Why? Because there's certain credit protection in those states they couldn't even in bankruptcy couldn't access. So what is the value of having credit protection? What is the value of other benefits? And so one of the things that I'm trying to do with the movie is there is one group of people that say life insurance can enhance your stock portfolio by almost double because it acts as a volatility buffer. And instead of the 4% rule, you can be more aggressive when taking out income, knowing that if the market corrects or drops, you can have a separate asset that's not tied to the market where you can let it recover. So there are people academically that are saying this could help people pay out more in pensions and annuities and the market if they had another asset that was tax advantage and not in the market. And so you have that group of people. Then you have the group of people that say, well, controlling your money is way more important than just locking up your money in a 401k because what is the value of having access to money to invest in a real estate syndication or your business and all that stuff? And so you have that group of people. And then you have the boring group of people that are just the life insurance people that are saying, what is the value of actually protecting your family long-term and all this stuff? And so what I'm trying to do is properly comparing buy-term and invest-a-difference versus using proper fund whole life insurance or IUL and the pros and cons to that. And what I can tell you is if you value control, if you value the concept of like, I don't know what the next 30 years would like, but I like the access of control, life insurance overfunded is going to have a lot more advantages. If you're the type of person that's like, you know what, I believe in the long term, I want my money to compound and I want to make sure that I'm not leaving my family, you know, hurt. I would buy term and invest a difference is very attractive. And I think understanding both strategies and we can break down it even more, you can kind of see the benefits of the pros and cons. And like I said, when I wrote the book, The End Asset, I was very much way more of like, this is going to solve America's problems. And I'm realizing that for 95% of people, it really isn't. It's really for the people that, number one, believe that taxes are going to be a lot higher, value control, and can save more than $10,000 a year. And you, we all know, if you look at stats, that a lot of people are not in that boat. Well, fortunately, our audience is Caleb, so let's keep digging. So, All right, perfect. So you just mentioned these two scenarios, you know, buy term and invest the difference, and then invest in a whole life or at least a properly funded whole life policy. When you're going to set this up, like, is there certain companies that are better than others? Are there some that like, there's no way that you can do this strategy? Like if you buy from this company, you're just screwed. You should, you know, cancel your policy or try to figure a way out. How do you go about like your first steps setting this thing up? I'll be general here, but when it comes to insurance companies, there's two types of insurance companies. There's stock companies and then there's mutual companies. Stock companies are companies that Warren Buffett owns and you can trade their stock on the stock exchange. And so one of the questions that you can ask is, who benefits when these companies are profitable? The shareholders. Well, the shareholders are Warren Buffett and other people that have the stocks. Mutual companies are a lot smaller, meaning like there are fewer of mutual companies than there are stock companies. And the biggest difference is the profitability. The profit gets passed on to the shareholders, but the shareholders are the policyholders themselves, the people that are holding these insurance contracts. And so the biggest difference is, the extra profit of insurance companies, where do they go? And so when we're setting these policies up, and if I'm working with an entrepreneur and they want this, we're usually looking at a mutual company. So Mass Mutual, New York Life, Penn Mutual is a great company, One America. There's some really good companies out there. And you want to make sure that you're working with a mutual company that has your best interest in mind. But more important than that is all we're really trying to do is we're trying to maximize a contract. And the contract is where you're maximizing the cash benefits and, and that's really where the expertise is in. So it's like picking the right company is one thing, maximizing the contract is another. And when we're looking at these maximizing contracts, we're looking for two things. We're looking for flexibility. And the flexibility really comes by getting the base insurance premium as small as possible and allowing you to overfund with different riders that are flexible as much as possible. So that's the first thing. And then the other thing is just the cash performance. The other thing that I think your audience would ask is, what is the rates of return of these policies? And typically, across the board, we'll see internal rate of return. And what internal rate of return means is they're including the costs of the insurance. They're including all the other commissions and fees that are tied to this. And you're essentially looking at the actual growth value. And so if you look out over 20, 30 years, you're looking at this account is going to earn anywhere from 3.5% to like 4.5% growth. Now, you might be thinking, that's horrible. It's a terrible price to put your money. Well, let me ask you this, Cody. 
what savings accounts do you know of right now that can get you three and a half to four and a half percent and keep your money liquid that you can control? Not any reputable, super safe ones that come to mind. <laughs> right. So that's why the biggest difference is this is not an investment. Because if I was saying this is better than the ETFs or, or your business, I would be an idiot. Where I see it as a place to storehouse your money because not only are you getting three and a half to four and a half percent actual growth rate, but you're now getting a permanent death benefit, which is valuable. You're getting creditor protection. You're getting other benefits that, you know, God forbid, if something happens to you, like health wise, you can tap into the death benefit prematurely. But then you also, your money's growing tax free. So if we compared to a savings account or any other like asset, you have to factor in taxes. Well, in a savings account, you have to pay ordinary income tax on your interest. I know it's not that big of a deal because we don't <laughs> earn any interest. But if we were comparing to a savings account, you would now have to earn four and a half to five and a half percent just to keep up with the life insurance because one is tax free and one is not. And then when you start looking at fees and then when you include buy term and invest a difference, when you buy term what the opportunity cost of buying term is that money's never able to compound for you again. So when we do that, we're looking at a properly structured life insurance should get six and a half to seven and a half percent. And again, this is not an investment. This is simply a better place to storehouse your money. And so that needs to be understood because if it's not, then people are like, I don't get it. Why would I do that? It's simply a place to put your money and have the long-term growth, which is okay, but more importantly, having the control with still getting a better rate of return than like a savings account. And earlier you said, you know, this maybe only makes sense for people who have that extra $10,000 a year to invest. But if we're just talking about using this as a place to put kind of like where you would put your cash, like an emergency fund, I guess, where does that $10,000 come into play? And so are you saying, you know, maybe somebody would only do this for five or six years just until they get a solid base of cash? The exception to the rule is, and someone emailed me this yesterday because they watched one of my videos and they're like, Caleb, I feel like if I only had a thousand, like a couple hundred dollars a month, I could do this. And, and I really care about legacy and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, you can do it if you care about legacy and all of this. The reason I say 10,000 is there a certain fixed cost to these accounts. And when you only have a couple hundred dollars a month, it's hard to optimize these accounts. And so you're going to, it's going to be less efficient than when you have a lot of money up front. I'm also a big fan of doing what's called a front load. I know we're getting super technical here, but I think the math would be in favor of the person that would wait a couple of years and do a lump sum versus someone that's just putting a couple hundred dollars a month in a year. I think long-term you'd be more efficient doing a lump sum versus many inefficiencies that happen with a couple hundred dollars a month. So it really comes down to the principles are still there. It's just, I don't want to do life insurance and have it eat up cost. And there's certain built-in costs that are fixed, whether you put $100,000 in or you put $1,000 in, there's some fixed cost. And that's where we say it's not for everyone. The other thing that I'll say is what I found is when a people only have a couple hundred dollars a month, their expectations of a product is super high. And they tend to get discouraged because this is not going to win any sexy award or growth award. And so it really is for people that see the tax benefits, see the credit protection, like the idea of their money being safe and giving them the ability to utilize it. And when you're putting a few hundred dollars in a month, it does take a very long time for that to be like, make sense. But the principle is still the same. So does that answer your question? Everyone can use it. It's just what we found is $10,000 is a good starting point. Before that, Let's look at a Roth IRA. Let's maybe do term insurance that could convert in the future and let's not get too carried away. So whether it's personally speaking or just what you recommend to clients who do have a lot of disposable income who are investing a ton or investing in real estate or building a huge emergency fund, now what percentage of that excess income goes into these policies? Like I know you mentioned the term rider and maybe you can just define that as well. Like how much money can you actually put into these things and what do you usually recommend? Great question. So the rider is, is called a PUA rider, paid up addition rider. And it's just the most efficient legal way to get money in a life insurance policy tax-free without creating a massive insurance liability in the future. And so the next question is, what limit? Because the government doesn't limit how much money you can put in. So that's, I'll take a step back. The reason why a lot of banks, institutions, the Rockefeller family, the reason why a lot of people like this is in a Roth IRA, there's a limit income-wise, and then there's just a limit to how much money you can put in. 
when there comes to life insurance, the government is not limiting how much money you can put in. And remember, it acts very much like a Roth after tax dollars, but grow tax-free, can be used tax-free and get passed on tax-free to the next generation. The limit that you do fall into is you can't be worth more dead than alive. So the insurance company is not going to insure Cody for a billion dollars because you would be incentivized to kill yourself or somebody, <laughs> somebody, even maybe your fiance would be incentivized <laughs> and be like, you know what? I love Cody, but not, I, I love a billion dollars more. And so there's always that limit to how much death benefit you can be worth. And so then you reverse engineer that. And so for example, I maxed out my benefit at contributing a little over $100,000 a year. So I save more than $100,000 a year, but I can only put $100,000 a year to life insurance right now. Otherwise, I need to prove that I'm worth more, which I could make the argument that I am. That's the, I would say, the roadblock. And, and I'm a big fan of saving a lots of money into these strategies because it's not an investment. I'm not saying like, I hope this works out 30 years. I'm u- literally using it as a, a place to utilize. And I've been, I'm four years in the making. And so every time I contribute a dollar, I actually have access to more money that I could reinvest and do other things. And so it's gotten to a point where every time I feed the machine, it's actually becoming more efficient and I have more access to money. And I don't know if that answers your question or not, but whether it's life insurance or not, I believe people need to save more. And we're just a big fan of helping people save more regardless of what that looks like. And I know I hear you keep saying like this, it's not like you're not trying to think about it as an investment. You're trying to think about it as like an alternative, like a savings account. But I'm also hearing like large sums of money going in there. And so I'm just kind of curious, like how you balance, because I don't think most people would recommend someone have hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash on hand. So why would you recommend them having so much into one of these accounts? Well, it goes back to the savings account analogy. When you put money into the market, your money is essentially transferring to a savings account and then to the market or into an investment. So your money is doing one thing. Life insurance is just an example of like, if your money can do two things and those two things are better than one, that's the philosophy. And so you're not storing your money long-term there. It's a more efficient place than running your money through a savings account. That would be the philosophy of why you would have it. So once you've got this large sum of money in this account, then you can take it and invest it in something else that can continue to grow tax-free? If the investment's tax-free, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of what we talk about is emergency fund and opportunity fund. Once our clients have whatever they're comfortable with, six months to a year of emergency cash or cash equivalents, everything else is what are you investing in? And that's where you're never going to become wealthy just parking your money any place. You're going to become wealthy by buying assets that create cash flow. And so that's what we teach. And a lot of our clients are business owners. Some of our clients do real estate. Some of our clients do some really creative investing. We have a a person that has a fund that's worth over a billion dollars in the option world. So like we're, there, we're, there's a lot of things and they, life insurance is just a part or at the center of what they get to do. And that's just the example of how the asset is used. It's not an or, it's an and. The and asset. So let's say you have $500,000 sitting in one of these accounts and you want to go you know, buy property, invest in a company, something where you're kind of closer to the control where your rate of return is probably going to be higher yeah. than that three and a half to four and a half percent in that quote unquote savings account vehicle. How do you go and tactically do that? Like, what is the process to get that money out and start working for you in different ways? Yeah. So with every insurance company that we use, you can actually borrow against the general fund and you pay the insurance company some interest rate. So the interest rate could be anywhere from like 4% to 8% based on what that is. Now, I know savvy people are saying, okay, you're earning three and a half percent and it's costing you four and a half percent, that doesn't make a ton of sense. And you're right, if life insurance only benefit is a rate of return, there's no other benefits to life insurance, then it doesn't make a ton of sense other than the continuous growth of the policy. But I assure you, if you're gonna borrow at four and a half percent, your policy has to be growing and being worth more than what you're paying for other people's money. The other principle is if you're gonna pay 4% or 5% for your money, Whatever activity you do needs to be greater than what we call the control cost. So an example of this is if I borrow the insurance company's money at 5% and I go invest in a 2% CD, I'm paying 5% to earn two. That's a negative 60% rate of return on my money. Or if I pay 5% to go earn 5%, that's really not a good use of money. But if I pay 5% and earn 12%, 
That's 140% rate of return on my money. Why? Because I'm acting like the bank. I'm not using my own money. I'm controlling someone's money using a percentage. Now, what we do with our clients is we use what's called third-party lending. And third-party lending essentially acts the same way as the insurance companies, but just gives you cheaper access to your money and works very much like a HELOC. So it gets you checkbook or a debit card that you can use that you can have a lot more convenience. It's a lot cheaper. And, and what we've just found is, well, going back to the efficiency equation, if you can reduce the cost of controlling capital, you're giving, you're, you have a way more advantage to, to make a difference. And so there are rates as low as three to three and a half percent that you can control money, have way more faster access. And again, life insurance has way more benefits than just the rate of return. But if you do that properly, you're literally getting a dollar to do two beneficial things rather than just one. And I think most people could kind of follow along when we're saying, if you're just parking your money, this is a better vehicle than a savings account because you are earning some interest. You are coming with some, uh, you know, benefits, the death benefits, some of like you mentioned, the creditor benefits. But then when you add this next layer on, it's like, okay, now I'm going to invest that money in something and I'm going to be paying interest to do so because it's a loan. At that point, why is it better to put money in there, pay the 5% to get it out, even though you are earning some versus just having it in a savings account? and taking it out and paying no interest. You're obviously not yeah. gaining any, but it's a zero sum versus maybe you kind of negative 1% the other way. It really goes back to understanding that life insurance benefits outweigh the cost of borrowing against it. If it doesn't, then it's not worth it. If it does, which again, that's why I'm going to make a movie and stuff. It's like life insurance, when you look at all the benefits, far outweigh the cost of controlling money. Uh, especially when you can use third parties to get that cheaper. But you're right. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And some of the reasons why you wouldn't want to use life insurance is in the first couple of years, you put money in and you have less money than what you, what you put in. So there's an opportunity cost of not having all that money that you could have had in a savings account. So this is very much of a, a strategy that is, is when you look at tax benefits and all of that, there are reasons why people do this, but it's not a lot of people online will talk about strategy and they'll be like, something doesn't feel right. It's usually because they're overselling it or um, speaking out of turn, I should say. So what I would say is I would not do the strategy if my benefit over here was less than the cost of capital. That wouldn't make any sense. What I'm saying is if, if utilize the pro asset properly, the benefits way out perform the cost of using that capital. And if that's the case, then that's why people do it. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, but yeah. That's a great question. Well, I was kind of curious if maybe, you know, I know you're saying you're going to make like make a movie, but if you had some examples and I understand that, you know, you probably can't say exactly who it was or what business it was, but maybe walking us through some concrete examples of like, yeah, this person, if they would have just had this in a savings account, these are the opportunities or the benefits they would have missed. But because they use this, you know, look at, look at how it benefited them. I don't know if I said this in the and asset book, but this concept of what is the value of a multidimensional asset, it's tricky because if you had your money in a savings account, you could take advantage of an asset. But what is the cost of not being able to access that money if it was in the market? And so there's a couple of things that need to go into a play here. So if you're looking at like a typical financial plan, there's usually accumulation and distribution and then legacy. And so if you compare, and this is, again, I'm maybe not answering your question, but like if you're going up the mountain and accumulating wealth, there's places that you can put your money. You can put your money into a 401k, IRA, whatnot. And there's an opportunity cost to that because your money's doing that stuff, but it may or may not be easy to access. You could also put your money in a savings account and have control, but have the lack of potential 30 years of growth. And so the scenario is the person would put their money into life insurance, get a maybe a little bit better rate of return than savings account, invest where they wanted to invest. And at the end, you may or may not be ahead. But then going down the mountain when it comes to distribution, you have way more options because life insurance could enhance your st stock portfolio. It could enhance in a pension. It could enhance you sell of their business where you're going to put it. You could put it back into a tax-free vehicle versus a vehicle that's not tax-free. And so it, it's tricky because when we're comparing things, even calculators, you have to compare with variables and the variable that everyone wants to compare it to is rate of return. But there's other things like distribution where we talk about the 4% rule. If you can make that the 6% rule, that's super valuable because the reason why we're investing to begin with is cash flow. But 
we're not comparing investments on what gives me a better distribution. We're usually comparing it on what grows better. What I'm saying is life insurance is okay on the accumulation side, is I think superior as an and asset in the distribution side, and is the most efficient asset when it comes to legacy. And so when you understand each of those phases and you combine all that together, it's definitely not a negative asset. In many cases, it enhances that. Again, I know we want a case study and I could probably get you a case study from when we look at each stage, but it's tricky because there's a million variables that go into how your money's invested and what you're the doing. The specific use case that I guess came to my mind was maybe like a hard money lender, like where you want to be able to have access to that money, but you don't want to just be sitting there with hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting in the savings account, not doing anything. But if you could take it, tap into it quickly, loan it to somebody, earn 10%, put it back in, repay that loan quickly. Like that's kind of a scenario I was trying to think of. Like, okay, so the most common, okay, I thought you were looking for like pure numbers. Um, the most common scenarios that people use this, this for when it comes to real estate is flipping. So a lot of times in a, in a real estate flip, you don't want to work with a bank because of the f- speed of money. And so you need access to that money. And the, the beautiful thing is when you do take a loan against insurance companies, you don't have to repay that back. And a lot of times when you're dealing with a, a real estate flip, the thing that you want to be careful of is the cash flow because you're putting all your time and energy into this one thing and then you're going to sell it, get a bunch of money, but you want to bleed as little money as possible going, going through that. And so an example of that is if, you're, if your money is in an insurance policy or in a savings account, you go do the flip, you have the efficiency of your money growing over here, whereas in a savings account, it's not growing. Yes, you're paying a little bit more interest, but when you sell it, now you can repay back the loan, have all the access to your money and your money's continuing to grow versus being like the saver where you're saving up and starting over, saving up and starting over. So that is, the, that is an example of how real estate people use this asset. And what I would say over 30 years or 40 years of that behavior, the life insurance is going to have an additional 1.5 million. And we're talking same deals. The difference is this vehicle worked every single day versus the savings account worked when you had money in there, but when you took it out, it wasn't earning and it wasn't earning nearly as much interest as the life insurance. And it wasn't tax-free as the, even though the life insurance was tax-free. So that'd be the, the best example of like two successful real estate flippers over 30 years. One just has more money because of where they're getting access to that money. And so that would be an example. What I'm saying is that $1.5 million difference doesn't represent the true value of the life insurance because that's just looking at one benefit rate of return. We're not looking at any of the other benefits like the permanent death benefit, like the long-term care, like aspects of life insurance, like the tax-free nature, like the distribution, like the legacy and estate value that you have. And so I kind of feel like this is a life insurance pitch, which I don't <laughs> want this to be. <laughs> but I just, I appreciate your intentional questions because it's like, and again, that's why I almost cop, my cop-out is like, this is not for everybody. And quite frankly, it's probably much easier if you don't do this. But it's one of those things that I couldn't unlearn when I, when I saw the asset. One last thing I want to ask while we round this thing out, and this is the distribution part. So let's say you start this right away. I think you started when you were 19, right, Caleb? So yep. by the time you're 65, 70, you're going to have a ton of money sitting in this whole life account and all these different riders. And you're going to be you know, taking loans out against that, the value of what you have in that policy. When you, when you are no longer earning an income, you kind of want to just sit and relax. You're done. You're retired. What is the kind of distribution process? Are you forced to take out loans against the value of your assets? Can you just directly pull the money out of that policy or how does that whole thing work? The beautiful thing is this is a contract, a private contract, and the government doesn't know what money's in there and they don't ask like they do in a Roth for a 1099R. And so I really can do whatever I want. Hopefully, my goal is not to rely on any saved assets. It's to have cash flow coming in from businesses and real estate and all of this other stuff. But assuming I wanted to tap into that money, I could do one of a couple things. I could surrender the policy, which I wouldn't do, but I, I could do it if I wanted to. I could take a withdrawal and not pay any interest, or I could take a loan out and that loan would just get repaid upon my death. And the death benefit, which was growing every year, would get paid out less the outstanding loan. And so those are the three ways to really access my money. And it really comes down to what would be the most efficient way where interest rates will be. I don't know, but you have all three options available. And that's what I would use. The other thing that I would say is your permanent death benefit. I'm going to 
I'm going to share a strategy that I don't share often. Your permanent death benefit is an asset because what is a guarantee in your life? You're going to die, all right? So let's just say, and this is just, this will get you thinking because people actually invest in people's death benefit as an asset. Let's say I had $10 million and I'm 80 years old, okay? And I have a $10 million death benefit. And let's say I'm not the healthiest, okay? And I have $5 million of cash value. And let's just say, I'm like, you know what? I just want to cash this thing out. So if I cashed it out, I would get $5 million of my cash. But I would be leaving another $5 million of death benefit. So what I could do is I could say, and people do this all the time. It's like, Cody, what if you paid me $7 million and, and you got the $10 million when I passed away? So it, that's an extreme example of your permanent death benefit is an asset because institutions, investors, um, banks, there's so many opportunities that you can use it. It can be morbid, uh, but we are going to die. So why not? It, it can be an asset on your balance sheet. So that's just an example of a lot of people are like, oh, death benefit doesn't matter until I die. Well, there are many clients that are creatively using their death benefit to take out more money while they're living based on an event that will happen in the future. Yeah, it's almost like a crazy different version of like a reverse mortgage or something where you can. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I remember we had someone else on the show one time that kind of focused a little bit on insurance. And I asked the question, I almost felt like I was going to be judged by asking the question, but like if there was any benefit to me, maybe taking out some kind of life insurance policies on my parents, because, you know, it's like I just pay the premium for them and, you know, I get the get the. That's what I'm going to do. When it comes to insurance, there's an insurable interest and then there's the, there's the payer. So there's the insured and there's a the payer. And for instance, if if what I said was accurate, why couldn't I fund life insurance on my dad, control the cash, and then when he passes away, get the tax-free benefit paid to me? So um, that's what, when you look at the Rockefeller family, they, each generation of kids, when they're born, get life insurance that gets paid back to a trust. And at the end of the day, each family member, no matter how messed up you are, eventually will get, get a lump sum of money to get paid back into a trust. And so that, that concept is used. And I think we have to be honest and know that it's, it's only a matter of time until we're all going to be dead. Well, Caleb, thank you so much for letting us grill you on all these insurance questions. So I know you're not trying to come and pitch, you know, whole life insurance, but it is such a kind of a hot topic. It's such a like a, a you know, one yeah. of those button pushers that when people hear life insurance, they automatically get riled up. So I think it's awesome to get yep. to kind of talk through it, pick through the, you know, tactically how this all works. But you always have a ton else going on. I mean, you, you've mentioned some of the other projects you're working on. You've done a lot in the past, a very interesting story. And so for those who are listening that want to kind of get in touch with you or maybe at least follow along yep. more with your story and what you got coming up next, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, so you can send your hate mail to Caleb at betterwealth.com. No, that's our website is betterwealth.com. Uh, we do we do taxes, we do coaching, we have an RAA, so I'm not anti-market. Um, we also do the insurance strategies. And this is what I'll say, because this is really important to take a step back. When it comes to the wealth framework, know what you want to do, be able to audit what you're currently doing, and whatever you do with your time, money, relationships, make sure that you're just getting closer to where you want to go. So don't like, don't try to do real estate if it's not you. Don't do insurance if it's not helping you get where do you want to go. Like really reflect back and and, and remember, efficiency is knowing where you want to go and getting there without any friction. And so the person that's able to do that well uh, will be successful. And so again, I, I, I'm like, sorry if I went too in the weeds. I appreciate the honest questions, um, but I'm really a big fan of helping people live their best life. And I really don't care if you use insurance, stock market, real estate. My hope is that you can live super, super intentionally with the resources that you have. Well, don't worry about going too deep at all. I think our audience is really going to love this episode. Share it around, learn some of these new strategies. And before we hit record, just for the audience's sake, I asked Caleb, if there's anything he wants to talk about? He said, no, I just want to serve your audience. And you did that and more, man. So just want to thank you again from myself and from Justin for coming on today, sharing all this wealth, better wealth. And we'll definitely have to have you on again in the future. And Cody, for your audience, let me just make sure that this website still works. Okay. Betterwealth.com slash vault betterwealth.com slash vault. There's no opt-in that's needed. It's literally a one-stop shop of hours and hours of content on this strategy. And I give examples of for real estate, business, retirement, stocks, college, cars, CD alternatives, and IULs. We have a calculator there. We have case studies, testimonials, and I think we answer over 100 questions 
that people have. And so that's a place that if you are wanting to know more information, if you go to betterwealth.com slash vault, we put a ton of our YouTube videos and some videos that are not on YouTube to simply help answer questions for people that are curious and learning more. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.